Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Hello, everyone, everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Glory to God. We're so glad that you could join us today. We are blessed every day that you can tune in and, and hear the uncompromised Word of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer, and we'll begin today's broadcast. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you and we praise you for all that you accomplish in our lives. Lord, none of it would be possible without you. But with God, all things are possible to them who believe. Hallelujah. Father, be with this broadcast this day. May you have your way with this broadcast. And in the name of Jesus, we thank you that your word goes forth and it does not return to you void. Your word accomplishes what you please. Your word is prospering where you send it. To each and every listener, in the name of Jesus, I declare they are blessed and prospering in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Join with me in our confession of faith. Hallelujah. This is the, the foundation upon which your faith must rest. You cannot waver in any one of these points. You cannot compromise in any one of these points. Or your faith is not built on the solid rock. This is commonly referred to as the Apostles' Creed, but it is so powerful that we declare it every Sunday morning before we even begin to study the Word, because this is the foundation upon which our faith rests. Please repeat these words after me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From where he shall come soon to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the church is the body of Christ. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body, and I believe in life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. In the past, we have studied the subject of the cross from various perspectives. But as I was working this week, I... 
I had the occasion to listen to a very compelling teaching by John MacArthur. And when I got looking into it and looking up various resources, I had the occasion to find a teaching that looked at what God was seeing as Jesus was on the cross, paying the ultimate penalty for my sins, your sins, and the sin of the entire world. And it got me to thinking about that, and I just wanted to share with you today some thoughts about this subject. So if I ramble on a little bit, just remember that it will all come together at the end. Amen? That's my promise. Glory to God. It's in the light of that that I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And I want to take us back this morning to the beginning, if I can. It's been a long time since I did a study in, uh, at the, about the work of the cross, uh, you know, the work that Jesus accomplished at the cross. Yes, I know, we all know that he paid for our sins and all that, but sometimes we just kind of gloss over that. And the time has come, I believe, that we need to take a closer look at this subject. Now, the death of the Lord Jesus can be viewed in several different ways from several different perspectives, as you know. We've gone through some of these perspectives before, so I'm not going to rehash them. Most frequently, we examine the death of Jesus from our viewpoint. You know, we know he paid the price for our sin. We come to the cross and we see it through our own eyes, through man's eyes. We see the cross of Jesus as that act by which Christ provided salvation for us, by which he saved us from sin and death and hell and the power of the flesh and the power of the grave, by which he delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Son of God, by which he also ushered us into that place where we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, by which he also delivered us from the entire wrath that's to come, by which he took us who were enemies and made us friends of God and then children of God, by which he granted to us eternal life and security. And all of that involves. And we usually look at it from that viewpoint, the, our viewpoint. And it can be looked at that way, and legitimately so. And we studied this before. We could also come to the cross and look at it from the viewpoint of the angels who are viewing it. The angels, by the way, look at the cross and they're searching around it and over it and, and examining it. And they're looking into the atoning work of Christ, trying to comprehend and understand its great, profound mysteries. Mysteries which they cannot fully understand because they will never fully experience it. Because holy angels need no redemption. They see it in the wonder and the majesty and the glory of the mind of God and the goodness of God and the love of God as he provides for unworthy sinners. And that perspective is a fascinating perspective, but it's not one we're going to go into today. We could look at the cross from the standpoint of Satan 
and all of his demons. They see the cross as that point in which the sun bruised the serpent's head. That point in which the one who had the power of death, Satan himself, was destroyed by the one who now carries the power of death, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Demons see the cross through their own eyes. They thought the cross was their moment of victory. And in one split second, Jesus showed up in the pit to announce his triumph over them. And he's openly displayed his victory over principalities and powers and rulers and so forth. And we could look at the cross from that vantage point of the demons, but not today. We might even look at the cross through the eyes of Jesus, and we've done that before. We can see it as he must have seen it. There it was that he was to bear the sins of all the world, all of humanity from Adam all the way to the last person born into this earth before everything ends. He had to bear that sin. He had to bear it in his own body. And we could go through the excruciating agony of that kind of sin bearing and that kind of rejection, and we hear him cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We could also see the cross as the moment of his glory. For he said, If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. We could also see it as the verification of his word. Because he promised that, that he was going to die, and there his promise came to pass. We could also see it as the moment of his greatest triumph, his greatest victory, when he indeed did bruise the serpent's head just according to Scripture. We could see it as the great demonstration of Jesus' love. For he said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. You can look at the cross, as it were, through your own eyes. You could look at it through the eyes of the angels, fallen angels, through the eyes of Jesus himself, and always see its glory. But this morning, I want us to look at the cross and its relationship to God, to God himself, God the Father. What did it mean to God? What did he see when he looked at the cross? We know what Jesus' death meant to us. We know what it meant to the angels. It gave them a new verse, as a matter of fact, in their great hymns of praise. We know what it meant to the demons. It was the end of their control of their own destiny. We know what it meant to Jesus himself. But what did it mean to God? A lot of times we miss that part. What did the death of Christ mean to God? How did that represent God? How did that glorify God? What is God's perspective of that great event, the death of Christ on the cross? And to understand that, let's look at Romans chapter 3 and follow as I read, beginning in verse number 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, that great text tells us what the cross meant to God. What the death of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, the bloodshedding sacrifice of Christ meant to God. Four things to me clearly stand out, and I want to share them with you. It declared God's righteousness. It exalted God's grace. It revealed God's consistency. And it confirmed God's word, his promises that he had made. It's my intention this morning to worship and honor God with this teaching. And so it's fitting that in doing so we look at the cross, as it were, in relation to God. That we might worship God for his righteousness, his grace, his consistency, his law, and which is also his word. Now let's look at the first one, God's righteousness. Verse 24 says, being justified as a gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Now let's stop right there for a minute. Christ died on the cross to demonstrate or to reveal or to declare God's righteousness. This is a very, very essential, uh, a very important issue. Men have always struggled with this matter. Why? Because when you understand God to be a righteous God, and you understand yourself to be a sinner, it puts you in a very difficult position. Amen? How can a sinful man be right with God? This is man's age-old longing. How can I know God? How can I be forgiven by God? How can I be right with God? It is that very question that has spawned what we call religion. Religion is, in every sense, an attempt to answer that question, to solve the cry of the heart of man, to appease whatever deity he may believe in, under whose authority he feels himself and under whose judgment he's afraid of. It doesn't matter what religion it is. That's the basic foundation of those religions. How can I be right with God? 
Is God a righteous, holy, and just God? If he is, then how can I appease him? How can I satisfy his requirement for holiness and perfection and justice and righteousness and still be right with him? Job, uh, in a rather poetic way, put his musings down like this. The one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it doesn't shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He's the maker of the bear and of Orion and the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be numbered. When he passes me, I can't see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Even though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could not plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm, multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath, but he would overcome me with misery. If it's a matter of strength, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who will summon him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, my mouth would pronounce me as guilty. And like I said, of course, I'm talking about Job here. The musings of a man who fears he could never be right with God. Many suggestions are made about how man can be right with God. And again, we call them religion. But apart from Christianity, all of them involve human achievement, human works. And they never satisfy God. They don't make provision for us. And they definitely do not make us right with him. You remember Bildad, the friend of Job, who echoed Job's cry? How can a man be right with God? How can he be clean? You remember Paul on the Damascus Road? What would you have me do? Do you remember who or those who heard Peter cry? What shall we do? You remember those in hearing Jesus who said, What do we do to work the works of God? Do you remember the Philippian jailer who said, What must I do to be saved? How can I connect up with a righteous, holy, and just God? That has always been the cry of men's hearts. Now, if God were just to move down, come down, and forgive man, that in itself would strike a blow against his justice. And someone would say, well, God's justice is whimsical. God's righteousness is capricious. He's on again and off again because some sinners he judges, 
and damns and condemns and some he forgives. You just can't trust his righteousness. You can't trust his holiness. You can't trust his justice. God wants, however, for you to know that his nature is immutable in any attribute and that his justice, his holiness, his righteousness is immutable and unchanging and absolutely 100% consistent. Amen. So God devised a plan which would demonstrate and reveal his righteousness. Verse 24 says, We are justified. We are made right with God as a gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now listen. There is nothing any person can do. Nothing they can do to be, to be made right with God. There is nothing any person can do to satisfy God's requirement for holiness and righteousness. You are condemned from the start. There is nothing any human being can do to settle God's justice. So if we can't do anything, the initiative has to be with who? With him, with God. And that's what Paul says. We are justified as a gift by his grace. God gives us justification. God gives us righteousness. God gives us a right relationship with him. He does what we could not do. We could never satisfy his righteous demands. I mean, after all, Jesus said, Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we remember the words of Isaiah, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. The very best we could be in the eyes of God, we would still be as filthy rags. We could never be perfect. Therefore, we can never achieve a relationship with God that would satisfy God. So God had to give us a gift. He had to give us, in other words, what we could never earn. I mean, that's the definition of a, gift, of a gift, isn't it? You don't earn a gift. If you earned it, it isn't a gift. It's pay. So he gave us this gift. But in giving us a gift, somebody might say, well, God, that isn't a just God because it's not just to give you a gift when you don't deserve it. God's not a holy God because he's overlooking your sin. God's not a righteous God because he's tolerating your unrighteousness. God's accepting you as you are, which means God has lowered his standard. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. It's not the right way, but that's one way. That would be the accusation that some people would deliver in trying to justify their works for God. And it would readily be on the lips of a Pharisee if you go and study them out. And so Paul says, but God did give us a gift. And it came out of his grace, which means it was undeserved, unmerited, unearned. He gave it to us through the redemption, which is available only in Christ Jesus. Now that word redemption the basic Greek word means it's a ransom. You know what a ransom is. Somebody kidnaps a child and 
hauls him off somewhere and then calls up and says, the ransom is $200,000 or whatever. You want to buy this child back? That's the price. Ransom means to pay a price to buy somebody back. It was used in the ancient times, uh, biblical times, to describe to buy a slave out of bondage and into freedom. Amen? So God says, look, I'm going to give you the gift of a right relationship with me. I'm going to give you the gift of forgiveness of sins. I'm going to give you a gift of eternal life. But I declare the price must be paid. There must be a ransom that is paid. And it was paid, he says, in Christ Jesus. It isn't that God capriciously just shoves his justice aside, shoves his righteousness aside, and shoves his holiness aside and says, I'll love you for a little while. I'll be gracious for a little while. I'll be merciful for a little while. And I'll ignore those other things. No, 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 no. God's holiness, God's righteousness, and God's justice can never be set aside. It's part of him. God will always operate consistent with his nature. So whatever he does that is good and gracious and merciful will also be holy, just, and righteous. How can he do that? He did it. He did it through the price being paid by Jesus Christ. In other words, he was so holy and just and righteous that some price had to be paid for sin. And he set the price as death. But he was so loving, gracious, and merciful that he gave his own son to pay the price of death. So justice was satisfied, and so was grace. Holiness was satisfied, and so was mercy. Righteousness was satisfied, and so was love. And it says in verse 25, that God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation of his blood. Let's stop there for a minute. God displayed Christ publicly. What does that mean? It means just what it says. He lifted him up where all could see, and he made him, Jesus, to be a propitiation. Now, that's a word that's not used very often anymore. The Greek word is, is hilasterion which means a satisfaction, a satisfaction. The criticism, you see, was that God was not righteous, just, and holy if he just overlooked sin. Because, remember, the end of verse 25, it says, In the past, God had been forbearing and passed over sins previously committed. Well, how could he do that and still be just? How can God wink at it, as it says in Acts, the sins of all those generations. How could he tolerate all of that? Because he knew somebody was going to pay the price one day. Amen. How could he forgive sinners? How could he just forgive them? And he could still be just. Because the price would be paid. His justice, his holiness, his righteousness, all of it would be satisfied. One day. 
I suppose to some people it seems as if divine justice was sleeping, if you would. As if divine righteousness had gone on a vacation. As if divine holiness had slipped into a coma. Men here sinned and got away with it. And you can still see it today. They lived. They prospered. Where were the wages of sin? What about the soul that sins? Well, it shall die. And then all of a sudden, along comes these preachers saying, He's going to forgive. He's going to forgive. He's going to forgive. He's gracious, loving, and merciful. He's going to forgive. And the question immediately arises. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait a minute. God's holy, righteous. He can't just be overlooking sin. Sin has to be punished. It can't just be excused. It can't just fade away. Sin can't just be ignored. Not with a righteous God. No amount of human optimism, no amount of love or grace or mercy can put sin aside and stop requiring its penalty. And the penalty is death. A holy God could never bypass sin and be complacent about evil. Even though God loves the sinner deeply, he cannot forgive the sinner unless his justice is satisfied. So the question is, how can a sinful man become acceptable to a righteous God. Somebody has to pay the price of death. And God, out of love, chooses not to punish the sinner, but he chose to punish his son. Therefore, he preserves the integrity of his nature and his reputation and gives place to his grace as well. If the sinner were to suffer for his own sin, if you and I had to suffer for our own sin, amen, think about it, oh, he would suffer eternally. You and I would have to suffer eternally. And even eternity cannot pay the price or else eternity would have an end and then it wouldn't be eternity. For example, Today, if someone gets caught committing a crime, they're convicted, they could go to prison for, let's say, 20 years. And they know that at the end of those 20 years, though it may seem like a long time to us here on earth right now, to this prisoner, he holds on, counting the days, counting the months, counting the years, until one day his cell door opens and they declare, your sentence is up, you're free. But with eternity, there is no ending. It just keeps on going and never gets better. There are no good days in hell. Amen. But God is gracious. God provides a sacrifice. Jesus Christ died the death that you, that I, that every person born into this earth deserved. He became sin who knew no sin. There was no sin in his nature. He died in our place. Jesus is our substitute. He had to be made man in order to die as a man. But he had to be God in order to overcome death and sin. And so this God-man had to suffer. Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer and be killed. He knew it. The early church preached why Christ must needs have suffered. 
The sacrifices of all the bulls and the goats couldn't do it. Hebrews chapter 10 says, By the blood of bulls and goats has no flesh been sanctified. It is an animal, animal sacrifice that did it. The animals did not sin. Man sinned. That bought the downfall and translated all of God's creation into the hands of Satan. The animal sacrifices could never satisfy God. It was just a picture of the one sacrifice that was to come. It isn't human achievement. Nothing you can do will satisfy God. A price had to be paid. And it is the price of man's shed blood and death. Christ paid it. Psalms 49 verse 7 and 8 says, None of them can redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly. The price is higher than any human being can ever pay. But it was paid by Jesus himself. No sinner could atone for the sins of fellow sinners. So Christ, the perfect one, the perfect man, paid the price of divine justice and bore the sins of the whole world. The death of Christ then was not only an act of grace, it was also an act of justice. Remember what we're studying here. Note in verse 25, it says that he is a propitation in his blood through faith. At the end of verse 26, it says he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This provision, this sacrifice of Christ, is appropriated only through faith. Through faith. Through believing. That is so very essential. So very basic to our faith. You appropriate the work of Christ by believing. That's true faith. So God on the cross, through the cross, puts his justice, his righteousness, his holiness on display. So just and righteous and holy is he that even as much as he wants to forgive the sinner, he cannot do it unless the ransom is paid, even if the price of that ransom has to be the death of his own son, part of himself. How many of us have children and we say that's, you know, these children are part of ourselves, part of our own being. And they are, DNA-wise, genetically, also spiritually. I can't get off into that because it would take me too long. Just think about that. How many of us are tied so close to our family? I mean, we may be living apart and separate, but what affects one member of the family affects the whole family. Think about that. Amen. Hallelujah. God was willing to put his own son on that cross to pay the price for all of mankind. That's how just God is. He can never be accused of being unjust or unrighteous. His justice was satisfied by the perfect, 
spotless lamb who paid the perfect price. We then were not redeemed by corruptible things, but by the precious blood of Christ Jesus. We see then in the cross the justice and the righteousness of God. Secondly, the cross exalts God's grace. The cross exalts God's grace. Verse 27. Again, somebody is going to pose another question. That if this is all God, then what part do we have in it? The answer is none. Basically, there is no place for boasting. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. It's excluded. Salvation is totally his work. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any should boast. Every component in salvation is the work of God. God then activates, quickens, and livens our faith. So we can believe. Amen. And so Paul says, where then's boasting? It's excluded. There isn't any place for boasting. It is left out of the equation altogether. By what kind of law? Well, verse 27 says, of works? No, but by a law of faith. In other words, if I don't have anything to do about this, if this isn't by works, then how does it work? When he says, by what kind of law, let me help you with that. That word law here means principle. Not so much a fiat as we think of a law like the Ten Commandments or some law that God's laid down, but a principle. A principle that's at work. Used, God used it the same way in Romans chapter 7 and elsewhere. And he says, all right then, if this salvation isn't something that I do, it's not anything I can do by any of my works, and then I can't boast about it, then by what kind of principle does it work? Of works? No. But the principle of faith. Believing. Only the principle of faith will exalt God. Glorify God. Because it takes it all out of man's hands. The law here, or the principle, or the method by which salvation works, is the method or principle, law of faith. So when we can do nothing more than just receive the gift of faith, we know it's the gift of grace. Amen. So again, we go back to God's grace being exalted here. The only one who can boast is God. For he, by grace, back in verse 24, he has given a gift to us, which we can only do one of two things with. We can receive it, or we can reject it. If someone has given you a gift, let's say someone's going to give you a cookie, you can say, thank you, and take it. Or you can say, no, I don't want it. It's the same way here with faith, with the gift of faith, the gift of God's grace. You can receive it, or you can reject it. We have no part in anything to do with God's grace except to receive it. He cuts the ground out from underneath the feet of those who try and say, well, I'm doing the best I can. I live a decent life. I'm a good person. Surely God will overlook me. And Paul simply says that it's all God's work. Period. Amen. Don't shut me down when I'm preaching good. Glory to God. 
Then in verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now here, the only contribution we make is to believe. And even the believing is a work of God within us. Amen. Remember what Paul said over in 1 Corinthians 15.10. I am what I am. By what? By the grace of God. Hallelujah. The hymn writer said, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, and that word frame uh, is anything that man can design, but I only lean on Jesus' name. Hallelujah. So the principle, Paul says, under which we operate in terms of salvation is a principle of faith in response to the grace of God. We look at the cross, what do we see? God's righteousness on display as the penalties being paid, paid, the ransoms being paid. We look at the cross, we see God's grace on display. God does it all. Jesus pays the price and God moves forward towards us in grace, giving us the gift of grace. All we can do is accept it or reject it. And this is the very heart of salvation, saving faith. Because he makes such an issue out of it. Verse 24 says, he, verse 24 says, we are justified by grace. Verse 25, we receive it through faith. Verse 26, we receive it through faith. Verse 27, it's not law, it's faith. Verse 28, it's faith, not law. That's a lot of faith emphasis. And because of that, I need to say to you today that it is faith that is at the heart of Christianity. Amen? Glory to God. Hallelujah. I want to give you a little test to help you examine your faith. A test, Brother Bob? we got to take a test? Yes, a test. Amen. I'm convinced that, it, that churches today are filled with people who have a kind of faith that doesn't do them any good. It does not save them. James called it a dead faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourself whether you are in the faith. We want you to be sure of where your faith is, that your faith is real, okay? So as you look at yourself, and you're asking yourself, am I really a Christian? Have I really appropriated this gift that only God gives? Have I really believed it genuinely with all my heart? What do you look at in your life to discern whether your faith is real? What are the marks of this faith? First of all, let me show you some things that neither prove nor disprove your saving faith. Okay? I'm going to give you a little list of things that don't prove anything. You could be a Christian or you could not be a Christian, but still have these things evident in your life. Well, Brother Bible, what are you doing that? Because the devil will use them to try and deceive you. They don't prove or disprove saving faith. But you need to know what they are so you're not deceived. Amen? Number one is visible morality. Visible morality. What do I mean by that? Some people, well, they're just good people. 
Some of them are very religious, like Mormon people, who on the outside appear very moral, or Roman Catholic people, or any other kind of religion. Some people, Muslims, some people are good people. They're honest. They're forthright in their dealings with others. They're grateful people. They're kind people. They have an external, visible kind of morality. By the way, the Pharisees rested on that same principle for their hope. They're loving people. Some of them are tender-hearted people. But of loving and serving God, they know nothing and feel nothing. Whatever the person does or leaves undone does not involve God at all. This person is honest in his dealings with everybody except God. He would never rob anybody but God. He's thankful and loyal to everybody but God. He speaks contemptuously and reproachfully of nobody but God. He has good relationships with everybody around him but God. He's very much like the rich young ruler who says, All these things I have kept, what could I lack? This is visible morality. But it does not necessarily mean salvation. People can clean up their act by reformation rather than regeneration. Amen. You probably know some people like that. Secondly, another thing that does not prove or disprove saving faith is intellectual knowledge. Intellectual knowledge. That does not prove true faith. Knowledge of the truth is necessary for salvation. And visible morality is the fruit of salvation, but neither one equals salvation. You see, you can know all about God. You can know all about Jesus, who he was, and he came into the world, and he died on the cross and rose again, and yes, he's coming again. You can even know more of the details of his life. You can understand all of that and then turn your back on him. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6, writing to those people who, knowing all of that, still refused Christ. And in chapter 10 he says, You're treading underfoot the blood of Christ by not believing on what you know is true. There are many people who know the scriptures, many people who have knowledge, but they are still destined for hell. You will never be saved without that knowledge but having that knowledge does not necessarily save you. I know I'm treading on some spiritual toes here, but just hang with me. Consider this like a spiritual surgery, and you're on the operating table, I got you sliced open, I'm taking all the, the bad stuff out, but don't jump up off the table and start running out. Let me get you all stitched back up here, amen? Number three. Religious involvement. Religious involvement is not necessarily a proof of true faith. There are people who have, according to Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, a form of godliness, but powerless, an empty kind of religion. Remember the virgins in Matthew chapter 25 who were waiting and waiting and waiting for the coming of the bridegroom, who's represented by Christ here. And they're waiting and waiting, but when he comes, they don't go in. They had everything together except the oil in their lamps. That which was most necessary was missing from their life. 
The oil represents the new life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They were not regenerated. They were religious. They were dressed up in their costumes or whatever. And they were there. They were present. They were waiting. But they weren't ready. You can have external, visible morality. You can have intellectual knowledge. You can have religious involvement. Be active every time the church doors open. And it may not indicate genuine faith. That brings me to number four, active ministry. Balaam was a prophet. Saul of Tarsus thought he was serving God by killing Christians. Judas was a public preacher. Judas was an apostle. Remember Matthew 7? Many will say to me, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, done many wonderful works, and cast out demons in your name? What did Jesus say to them? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Ministry activity does not necessarily prove you have saving faith. Number five is a conviction of sin. Lots of people feel bad about what they've done, me included. Lots of people feel bad about sin. Listen, the whole world is full of people that are just guilt-ridden to the core. I remember back 15 years ago or more now, when I was taking college classes back in Texas, I had my major, which was aviation, but I had my minor in psychology. And we were studying and would talk about people going to psychologists, a psychiatrist, and from the tests that we were studying, it was evident that most of the people who went to the psychologist or the psychiatrist were suffering in some form or fashion from guilt. And people used to write books about that. And the psychologists of the world have absolutely no answer for guilt. Because the only answer is the gospel. And they won't go down that road. Now what's happened in the last 15 to 20 years is now you do not have any people at all today who feel guilty. Because we've come up with a new psychology that eliminates guilt. Now all we do is we displace the guilt on somebody else. Well, it's their fault I'm not prospering. It's their fault I am the way I am. The new therapy is to make the person totally irresponsible for any of the guilt that they might feel inside for doing bad things and to free them from that guilt. And you do that by making the, basically, ultimate virtue is pride or self-fulfillment. Self-grandizement, self-glory, self-esteem. And that eliminates the need to feel guilty. So we really have come up with an utterly ungodly, unchristian, unbiblical psychology that has taken the guilt issue and completely eliminated it from human perspective. And you can see that in the church today. Instead of the preacher standing up to preach freedom from guilt to guilty sinners... They expect him to preach self-esteem to ego-centered people. The whole climate in church has changed today. And we've been skewed in our message because we have allowed the philosophy of the day to create a new kind of sinner who thinks he feels no guilt. The most important thing you can preach to a bunch of sinners is the sin in their lives and the law of God, which they fall short of and the impending judgment that is awaiting them.
But that's not a popular message today, is it? Because the new philosophy, the new psychology, has long ago eliminated guilt. We don't have people in church feeling guilty anymore because they've learned that therapy will help them and tell them they can put that guilt on somebody else who did something to them years ago. I don't care who you talk to. When they go into that kind of situation of counseling, inevitably it will come around. They'll say something to the effect of, I've been abused. I'm a victim here. I'm not responsible for the way I am. You see it on the news all the time with mass murderers all the time. Amen. So the sinner is dispossessed of his guilt, dispossessed of a direct approach from the gospel. I like it. I liked it better when sinners knew they were sinners and felt guilty. Amen. It was much easier to deal with. You've seen more altar crawls that way. But there are some people who do feel guilty. And some people who do feel guilty about their sin. In the Bible, Felix trembled under the preaching of Paul, but yet he never left his idols. The Holy Spirit convicts many of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and many that he convicts, they don't respond with true repentance. Some may even confess their sins. Some may even abandon their sins and say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm going to shape up and amend my ways but they do not necessarily come to saving faith. That's reformation, not regeneration. No degree of conviction of sin is conclusive evidence of saving faith. Believe me, even the demons are convicted of their sin of turning away from God because the Bible says they tremble, but yet they're not saved, not by a long shot. They never can be, amen? Number six in these examples of some things that people display but does not necessarily mean that they are truly saved is assurance. Some people will say, well, I must be a Christian. I feel like one. I think I'm one. Listen, just think this through. If to think you're a Christian makes you a Christian, then nobody could be deceived, correct? Because as soon as you thought you were a Christian, you would be one. Now, there are probably some who actually do believe this. And again, I say they are deceived. But if you believe this way, then you are saying that you could never be deceived. The whole point of Satan's deception is to make people think they're Christians, but who really are not. That's the whole point. That's his whole job. Many people feel secure. They feel that, you know, they're saved, but they're not. I'll tell you, there are millions of Mormons and millions of Jehovah Witnesses and millions of Christian scientists who believe they're on their way to heaven, but they're not. People say, God won't condemn me. I feel good about myself. I have an assurance inside me. I'm okay. That means nothing when it comes to true salvation. Amen. I used to believe I was saved. I grew up in a Christian home, went to church. My grandparents were elders in the church. I took the confirmation classes. I was a Lutheran growing up. I became a member of the church. I was in. I had it made. I was going to heaven. Or so I believed. Then I joined the army. Through the course of time, I did the things that 
soldiers and military people are known for. And when someone would come up to witness to me, I would immediately say, oh, I'm already saved. Go talk to somebody else. But when it came to true repentance, I realized how deceived I had really been for all of those years. Amen. And number seven, the last one, is a time of decision. I hear people say, well, I know I'm a Christian because I remember when I signed that card. You see, that's a popular way of doing altar calls today in churches. There are no altar calls where people come forward. A lot of these new churches, they just pass out cards, sign your name on the card, and then you'll be saved. I remember when I prayed a prayer, they'll say. I remember when I went forward, though, in the church. So, see, there are those people who will go forward just to say they went forward. I've heard people say, I remember right where I was the moment I did that. Really? Listen, just because you remember a moment doesn't mean that moment meant anything. It doesn't mean that a decision, a decision there was valid. Nobody's salvation is verified by a past moment. People have prayed prayers and gone forward in church service or side cards and gone into the prayer rooms and even been baptized and joined churches. And they never had saving faith. So those are some of the things that people will display, but they are non-proofs. They could be saved and those things would be evident in their life. Those things could be evident in their life, but they're not saved. So they don't, those things that I just said, those seven things, do not really prove anything. And you say, well, then what does prove saving faith, Brother Bob? Well, let me give you a quick list. The number one thing you must have is a love for God. Now you're talking. You're talking down about the heart because Romans 8, 7 says, The carnal mind is enmity against God. The non-Christian resents God, rebels against God down on the inside. But the regenerate mind is set to love the Lord with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. His delight is in the excellency of God, who is the first and highest affection of his renewed soul. God becomes his chief happiness. The only thing he wants to do is please God. And by the way... There's a big difference between such love for God and the selfish attitude that focuses only on my own happiness and sees God as a means to an end, rather as me to the end of glorifying Him. In fact, Jesus said, if you love the Father, or I'm sorry, if you love your father, your mother more than me, you're not even my disciple. If you love your family members, more than you love Jesus, more than you love the Father, that means you've put somebody in place of God. And Jesus said, you are not my disciple. That's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Do you love God? Do you love God's nature? Do you love God's glory? Do you love his name? Do you love his kingdom? Do you love his holiness? Do you love his will? Supreme love for God is decisive evidence of true saving faith. 
Is your heart lifted up when you sing praises because of him? Do you even know any songs of praise? I'll leave that one alone. Compared to some of the trash people listen to on the radio today. I'm not even going to go down that road. It'd take the rest of my time. We're almost out of time. Secondly is repentance from sin. The proper love for God must involve a hatred of sin. That's obvious. Who wouldn't understand that? If I love somebody, you assume that my loving them means that I seek their well-being, right? If I said to you, I love my wife and kids, but in actuality I could care less what happened to my family, you question my love because true love seeks the highest good of its object. So if I say I love God, then I will have to hate sin because sin offends God. Sin blasphemes God. Sin curses God. Sin seeks to destroy God and God's work and God's kingdom. Sin killed the Son of God. And if I say I love God, but I tolerate sin in my life, then you have every reason to question my love. I cannot love God without hating that which is set to destroy him. So true repentance involves confession. It involves turning from sin. I should be grieved over my sin. I should ask myself, do I have a settled conviction of the evil of sin? Does sin appear to me as the evil and bitter thing it really is? Does conviction of sin in me increase as I walk with Christ? Do I hate it not merely because it ruins my own soul, but because it's offensive to my God whom I love? Does it? Does it more grieve me more when I sin than when I have trouble? In other words, what grieves me the most? My misfortune or my sin? Do my sins appear many, frequent, and aggravated? Do I find myself grieved over my sin more than the sin of others? That is a mark of salvation, amen? True saving faith. It loves God and it hates what God hates, which is sin. Amen. Thirdly, it manifests genuine humility. It manifests genuine humility. This obviously comes to us through the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who in Matthew 18 are like a little child, humble and dependent. Those who are in self-denial, willing to take up their cross and follow him. The Lord receives those who come with a broken and contrite spirit. James says he gives grace to the humble. We must come just like the parochial son did. You remember what he said in Luke 15? Think about, I think it's about verse 21 or so. He said, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. There's no pride. There's no ego about religious achievement or spiritual accomplishment. Just genuine humility. I'm not worthy. And fourth, there's a devotion to God's glory. True saving faith that manifests genuine salvation, shows a devotion to God's glory. Whatever we do, whatever we eat, whatever we drink, we are literally consumed with the glory of God. We do what we do because we want to glorify Him. Oh sure, we fail in all these things sometimes, but the direction of our life is in loving Him and hating sin and being genuinely humble and self-denying and knowing our unworthiness and still being totally devoted to the glory of God. And number five is continual prayer. Humble, submissive, believing prayer is a true mark of faith. We cry, Abba, Father, because the Spirit in us prompts that cry. 
Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon titled, Hypocrites are deficient in the duty of secret prayer. It's true. Hypocrites may pray publicly because that's what Jesus said hypocrites do. They want to impress people. But they are deficient in the duty of secret prayer. A true believer with true saving faith has a personal prayer life, a private prayer life, and seeks communion alone with God. Number six, another mark of saving faith is selfless love. John says, if you don't love your neighbor, your brother, or one in need, how are we to believe the love of God dwells in you? And also in 1 John 3, uh, John says, if you love God, you'll love whom God loves. And we love him and others because that's the response to him loving us. John 13 says, By this men will know you are true disciples by our love for each other. Number seven, separation from the world. Paul told the Corinthians that we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God. John put it this way, Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. A true believer is separated from the world. We don't seek worldly things. We don't seek worldly pleasures. We seek God. Amen. Again, I say we fail in all these areas, but these are the directions for our lives. We aren't perfect. We haven't arrived yet, but we love God and we want to love him more. We hate sin and we want to hate sin more. We have a genuine humility and we want more of it. We are devoted to God's glory. We should have a prayer life that's private and personal with him. We have a love for others that comes from God. And we find ourselves disassociated from the world as a general rule. And then just two others. We're getting ready to close here in just a couple minutes. Spiritual growth is another mark. If you're a true Christian, you're going to be growing all the time. That means you're growing to be more and more like Christ. Life produces life. If you're alive, you're going to grow. There's no other way. You'll improve. You'll increase. You'll grow. Because whoever has that new work begun, Philippians 1.6 says, is going to see it perfected. It's going to go on. It's going to keep moving. The Spirit is going to move you from one level of glory to the next. So you look at your life. You should see spiritual growth. You see the decreasing frequency of sin in your life, the increasing pattern of righteousness and devotion to God. And finally, obedience. Obedient living. Every branch in me bears fruit. John 15 and Ephesians 2.10. Paul says, Look, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that you walk in them. That's obedience. We are saved unto the obedience of faith. So look at your life right now. Do you see these things? Including selfless love, separation from the world, spiritual growth and obedience? If so, that is evidence of saving faith. Now if we go back to our text. The cross declares God's justice and righteousness. The cross exalts God's grace which is appropriated only by faith. Thirdly, and just ever so briefly, the cross reveals God's consistency. God's consistency. Look at verse 29. What's the point here? Well, the Jews are going to say, look, we're justified by the works of the law, 
And now you're coming along and preaching to all these Gentiles that they're justified by faith. So that means there's two ways to heaven. Does God require works from us and grace and uh, through faith by them? Is God a merciful, saving God towards Gentiles, but a legal, condemning God towards Jews? Is that two different means of salvation? Two different standards of living? Of course, you realize, don't you, that the Jews believed they were saved by their works. So they were concluding that Paul was preaching a new way of salvation, which was not consistent with God's way. Paul says, is God the God of the Jews only? No. He is not the God, or is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes. And they would have to agree, for yes, God is the God of all men. Isaiah 54 says, the God of the whole earth shall be called, or shall he be called. Jeremiah 16, 19 says, the nations, plural, shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth. They knew that. Zechariah 2.11 says, And many nations, plural, shall be joined to the Lord, and they shall be my people. So they knew he was the God of Jew and Gentile. All right then, since indeed God is one. That's the Greek order in verse 30. You see he is one, and you understand he's one. Since indeed God is one, he will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, by faith. And he will also the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, through faith. Now here, you see the consistency of God by faith alone. Amen? You look at the cross and you see, since indeed God is one, if God is one and he is the God of all men and he's the God of both Jews and Gentiles, then he is one God over all men who will have only one way to salvation or of salvation. He will justify all by faith. God saves all people the same way. He always has, he always will, always apart from works. He's one God, the one way for all men. God never changes. He is absolutely consistent all the time. The cross did not introduce a new way of salvation. It simply covered the sins of all the past believers, as well as all the future believers who came by faith. How is Noah saved? Go back, way back to Noah. Genesis says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How was Moses saved? Go all the way back to Exodus. Moses found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How was Abraham saved? Romans 4 is all about that. Verse 3 says, Abraham believed God, and that was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's all the way back in Genesis 15. It's always the same way. By grace, through faith. By grace, through faith. In the Old Testament, they believed all that God revealed. They did not have Christ yet. They believed all that God revealed to them. The same way now after Christ. No one is, no one has, no one will ever be saved any other way than by faith. As God graciously offers forgiveness through the sacrifice of his son, which covers the sin of all sinners before him and after him. Amen? So the cross is the only way. From God's perspective, he declares his justice, exalts his grace, reveals his consistency. Lastly, this is rich. It confirms God's law. Verse 31. Of the Jews, they're going to say, Oh, all right, salvation's by grace through faith. Forget the law. There is no more law. There's no more works. The law is useless, pointless. Why in the world did God through all of that anyway? Why did he go through all that law stuff if we aren't going to be saved by keeping the law? Do we nullify the law? He says, No. No, 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 no. May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. 
What do you mean by that, Brother Bob? Putting Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty for sin is the way God satisfies the law. He's holy. His law is just, righteous. Jesus' death proves it. Nothing, there's nothing more of a reflection of God's law as holy than the death of Christ. That's God's law that put him there. Amen? If you have never received Jesus as your Savior, I want you to do so right now. Pray this prayer with me out loud. Father, I come to you and your throne this day to obtain grace by faith in the death of Jesus Christ that you honored his death and raised him from the dead. Jesus, come into my heart. Be the Lord of my life. Create in me a new man, one righteous in the eyes of God. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, will you email me at brotherbob at ftfm.org and let us know? We want to rejoice with you because we know in whom we believe. Amen. Till next time, this is Pastor Robert Tour reminding you, God loves you. We love you. Jesus loves you because he is Lord over all. He is the only way to salvation. Amen. He is the only way. So in his name, we pray that you are blessed, whole, and prosperous, and that you live for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's FTFM.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God.